Welcome. In today's lesson, we're going to finish the study of the book of Haggai. We're going to see God give two messages to his people. And this time it's a message of blessing. If they continue to follow God, if they continue to put him first, he is going to bless them. If you remember in chapter one, the people were supposed to be building the temple, but they had quit building the temple in order to focus on paneling their own houses. They worked very hard to gather things for themselves to try to get more money and more materials. And the harder they worked, the less they had. God had cursed them. So God sent a message through Haggai to them that they needed to consider their ways. They needed to put God first again and make him the number one priority in their life. The people responded well, and God gave them a message of encouragement that the temple they built, even though it was much smaller than Solomon's, even though they were discouraged at its size, that God was going to use this temple in a very glorious way. And of course, one day Jesus himself came to visit this temple to preach from this temple. And the veil was torn in this very temple, which separated the Holy of Holies. And through Jesus' death on the cross, people could then come in and have the relationship with God. So before we get into the details of today's lesson, let's read the passage uh, here in Haggai chapter 2. Our text today is Haggai 2, verses 10 through 23. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you in all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, Consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So at the end of the book of Haggai, God is giving two more messages to his people. 
And in short, those messages are a message of blessing. If they truly come back to the Lord and put him first, then he is going to bless them. And he's going to reverse the curse that we saw back in Haggai chapter 1. So to begin uh, talking to them about this matter, Haggai is then going to ask a question that, that, God, that God gives him to the priests. And that is about this transfer of holiness or transfer of uncleanness. So Haggai is teaching the people an object lesson through a question and answer session with the priests. Holy meat cannot consecrate other things it touches. So Haggai asks the priests if something is holy and it touches something else, can then, it, can then that holy meat consecrate or make holy the thing which it touches? The answer is no, it cannot. On the other hand, a dead body or something which is unclean according to the Mosaic law did indeed contaminate other things which it touched. And so God says, so it is with this people and this nation. God seems to be telling the people that they are under a curse because how they have prioritized their own lives above God. This was clearly demonstrated back in chapter 1. The people were supposed to be building God's temple, but they stopped work on the foundation of the temple. And instead, they, they came back to their own houses to do upgrades, to panel their houses. And they were focusing on sowing, harvesting, reaping. They were focusing on trying to gain more material wealth for themselves. They were trying to get more wine, more crops, better, bigger houses. And God told them that they were under a curse. Here he talks about it, that they tried to get 50 vats of wine and only came up with 20. And that the the seed, the, the crops, which they expected to get was much less. So the more they gathered things together, the more that God just blew it away. The harder they, they worked, almost like people on a, on a rowboat, they are rowing and rowing their boat, but they're getting farther and farther from their destination because God's wind of providence was against them. You remember from chapter 1, perhaps, that I talked about reverse providence. God's providence was actually working against them so that they received less than what they expected. So not only were they not being blessed, they were not even receiving the full reward of their labors, which they expected. They were being cursed by God. This was a sickness of selfishness, which permeated throughout the whole land. The harder they worked, the more they did, then this curse spread until everything in the land was unclean and defiled, including their sacrifices. In verse 15 through 17 here, God reminds them what their life was like before when they were focusing on their own material gain. He says, now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. Before you came back to building God's temple, consider what was your life like? He says, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the 
products of your toil with blight, with mildew, and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. So they worked and they worked and they worked, but they got much less than what they hoped and what they expected. Even their store piles or containers had less than what they thought. Imagine you, that maybe you, you, you know you have a certain amount of money in the bank and you go to the bank to withdraw this money out and there's only half of what you expect there. And you are wondering, where did it go? That's somewhat similar to the feeling that the Jews had at this time. They were wondering, where did all of their work and labor go? Sometimes it was blight or mildew or hail were the methods which God used to work against them so they didn't receive what they expected to receive. Now, there's a clear application and lesson here for us. You don't want God to be working against you. There is not really anything worse than finding that you are struggling and fighting against God. And that everywhere you turn, his face is set against you. If things indeed seem to be stacked against you in this way, you should ask yourself, why? Is it possible that there is some sin or some, some wrong habit in your life that maybe God is disciplining you for this sin or wrong habit or wrong decision? Now, of course, not all difficulties or trials come about because of our own sin or our own wrong decisions. Sometimes they are God's way of testing us, challenging us, and refining our faith. But sometimes they are indeed the result of our own poor choices. So as we learned back in chapter 1, we should consider our ways. Is that perhaps the reason we are facing the struggles that we do? Well, God says in verse 19, He says, From this day on, I will bless you. That's what it was like before, but now things are different. The people had heard the message from Haggai, and they had rededicated themselves again to building God's temple. And so God says, from now on, I'm going to bless you. The way things were before, when you were working and working and receiving less and less, that's the thing of the past. Now, my wind will be behind your sails. I will be favorable towards you. My providence will work on your behalf, and I will push you forward to a favorable result. This is a great promise. And when the people came back to the temple and were building it, this must have been very, very encouraging for them. God was once again on their side. He was with them. He was helping them. And he was blessing them. So God had promised to shift the wind of, in their favor, so to speak. And he would now work providentially on their behalf rather than against them. So this is a very basic lesson from Scripture, and it's very simple. If you obey God, then he will bless you. If you obey God, and he, then he will bless you. The form that the blessings take might be different now in the New Testament era than they were in the Old Testament. In Old Testament times, God often blessed the Israelites materially. He gave them good harvests. He took care of their physical and financial needs, and he prospered them materially speaking. These tangible results would show all of the neighboring nations around them 
that God had been divinely blessing them and giving his favor to them. Does God still bless this way? Does God still give us materials as a way to show his blessing to us? Of course, God may sometimes do this. Every good gift is from above. Everything we have, all of our money and all of our possessions, our house, our car, all of the things we own are from God, and they are God's blessings to us. And yet God does not promise that if you obey him, he is going to make you rich. In fact, many believers live a life of poverty. Many believers live a life of persecution. Many believers live a life of ill health. God does promise to be with them, and he promises to bless them in the middle of those things, but not necessarily bless them by restoring them out of that situation, or healing them, or making them prosperous in the world's eyes. So a lack of material blessings is not synonymous with a lack of God's favor. So how does God bless us today? Of course, God gives us peace and joy in our hearts. He gives us forgiveness of sins. He seals us with the Holy Spirit who indwells us. He gives us eternal life. He gives us his word. In short, he gives us meaning, purpose, forgiveness. God blesses us in so many ways. But many of these ways are spiritual blessings. So this is the first message that God gives to his people here in this latter part of Haggai chapter 2. I am going to bless you from now on. So when you come back to God, perhaps if you have a, a sinful choice in the past or you're living a life of sin and then you're facing God's discipline, if you choose to repent of that and come back to God, then he will bless you. In verses 20 and 23, God also gives them a reminder of the good future that he has in store for them. In verse 21, he says, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword and of his brother. God is going to shake up the world order. God raises up nations and then he throws them down again. I believe that this specific prophecy in this passage is a reference to the millennial reign, the 1,000 year reign of Christ, when he will defeat the nations of the world who are united against God. This is still yet to take place in the future. It's also prophesied in Daniel 2, 44 through 45. If you recall that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and in his dream there was a statue with a golden head and with the torso and the legs and the feet of this statue, and each part represented one of the kingdoms of this world. In the end of his dream, there was this huge rock made without hands that hit the feet of this statue and shattered it. And then this rock filled up the earth and had a long, long reign. And so this is similar here. God raises up nations and then he throws them down again. Nations rise and fall. Babylon, Egypt, Persia, Rome, Greece, all of the nations of the world. But one day Jesus will return. 
he will return to Jerusalem. He will sit on the throne there and he will reign physically over this world again. So prophecies like this indicate that there is still a future reign of Jesus when he comes back to this world, when he sets up his dominion. So this prophecy will one day be fulfilled literally with Jesus' return and his millennial reign. But there's an application for us here, and that is that we shouldn't put our trust in politics or world governments. All of these nations that we see, all of these leaders, all of these politicians will rise and then they will fall again. They don't offer a solution to mankind's problem of sin. And any solutions they can give to other problems are short-term in nature. Jesus alone provides the long-term solution to our problems. Now, even at the best of times, political leaders are often corrupt and cannot hope to solve the problems of the world. So we shouldn't build our life on the shifting sands of trusting in the government. Okay? Governments and nations can fall in a day and with little warning. Rather than trusting in people or in our country, we should trust in the Lord. We need to be careful about placing our hope in people, whether it's a politician or even a spiritual leader, because people make mistakes and people disappoint. Rather, we should build our life on the solid rock of Jesus. He is the solution. And then our life will be firm. And we can cling to him even if everything around us in the world collapses. Now, at the very end of this passage, God makes a promise to Zerubbabel in verse 23. He says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. I have chosen you. This is God's promise to Zerubbabel. This is very much like God's promise to David. In 2 Samuel 7, 16, as part of the Davidic covenant, God promised to David saying, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. God had made a promise to David that he and his descendants would sit on the throne over Israel forever and ever. At this time, though, in history, Zerubbabel must have felt very confused, right? Because God had made a promise of, to David for his dynasty, and now Zerubbabel wasn't a king at all. He was just a governor. So it seemed like, hmm, is God's promise really coming true? Is God's promise to David extending to me? Zerubbabel was a descendant of David, so naturally he would have wondered, how does God's promise to David keep going even now when the nation of Israel was not its individual kingdom anymore and Zerubbabel was not king? There was no one on the throne in Israel because there was no throne. Kings had been killed and imprisoned and exiled, so God's very promise to David seemed to be in danger of being broken. But then God reassures Zerubbabel and says, I have chosen you. God chooses Zerubbabel to carry on 
this promise to David. The line of the Messiah will pass through Zerubbabel. His descendant would be on the throne once again and fulfill all of the promises which God ever made to David. These, of course, are all fulfilled in Jesus, who would reign over Israel one day. And Jesus himself is descended from Zerubbabel, which you can find in Matthew chapter 1 in the lineage of Jesus. God has chosen you. God's promises would never, ever fail. The people could be conquered by foreign nations. The people could be exiled. The people could even be under God's curse for a period of time. But his promises would prove faithful because he is faithful. Now, it's a wonderful thing to be chosen by God. If you are also a follower of Jesus, then you are also chosen by him. As God had a plan for Zerubbabel, God has a plan for you. That plan may look bleak at times, as it did here with Zerubbabel in this passage. But God has a plan for your welfare to give you a hope and a future. Our very life is secure in Him. Our hope is secure in Him. Our salvation is secure in Him. Just as He didn't change His mind towards Zerubbabel, then God is not going to change His mind toward you. God does not offer salvation one day and say, I'll give you eternal life, and you believe, and then maybe you sin or make a mistake, and then God says, change my mind. No, God's promises are sure, and his forgiveness is always there. We see that here during the time of Haggai, God is patient and long-suffering. For 16 years, the people followed their own pursuits, and he still forgave them and accepted them again. In like manner, God will never abandon you. Maybe you've had 16 years living apart from him. Maybe it's even longer than 16 years. But he is always there waiting for you with loving arms, with welcoming arms to forgive you and restore you again to himself. The remnant being allowed to return to Jerusalem after 70 years in exile was a second chance. And when they returned, they didn't make the most of their second chance. They turned away and started pursuing their own material gain again for 16 more years. Then another message. And when they returned to God, he was once again waiting for them with loving arms. Although they proved faithless, he proved faithful. So God gave them a third chance. We should thank God for his forgiveness and grace. He doesn't just give us one chance and we blow it and he says, that's it, I'm done. He gives us a second chance, a third chance, and a fourth chance. He keeps forgiving us again and again and again. So we should thank God for his forgiveness and for his grace, that he is patient with us while also knowing that no matter how long you've been going your own way, it is never too late to come back to him again. We should consider our ways. Are we making him the number one priority or not? So the book of Haggai reminds us of right priorities. The people had misplaced priorities. God reminds them to come back to him again. They quickly repent and they obey. And God promises that I will bless you, that I will be with you and that he chooses them, and that all of the good promises he made to them 
remain true. We hope that you enjoyed this study of the book of Haggai as we learn how to make right priorities. And I hope that each one of you watching today or listening will also make God number one in your life. Put him first and he will bless you. All of his promises for you will come true. To see our entire library of over 800 Bible studies, please visit our website at www.studyandobey.com.